This is a People First Radio podcast. The other day at the grocery store, I picked up some Dia de los Muertos themed tortilla chips. As the bag of nachos reminds us, Dia de los Muertos is a Mexican celebration to remember loved ones who have passed on. It's believed they travel back and gather along with the living to share some of their favorite foods and, of course, to party. Growing up in Canada, I've often thought about how there doesn't seem to be a universal holiday or annual ritual to talk about death and honor our ancestors in the same way that exists in Mexico and many other cultures around the world. In fact, sometimes it seems like we avoid talking about death at all until we have no choice. Susan Srigley says the taboo around discussing death has particularly negative impacts on young people. We spoke about the work she's doing to give students the tools to talk about death. My name is Susan Strigley, and I am a professor of religions and cultures at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. And I am a death educator. Uh, I'm a palliative care volunteer. I'm a death doula or end-of-life companion. And in the past 20 years, I have been teaching death studies courses to my students. And this is really sort of growing for me. And so I've I've just become very interested in talking about death with post-secondary students. And the way you start out a lot of those courses, I understand, is with a death reflection. Can you tell me a bit about that, what that is, and what kinds of things you hear from these students who are coming in who haven't maybe talked about death before? Yes, absolutely. I think I freak them out with the death reflection, to be honest. Essentially, the assignment in all of the death courses is I, I want them to tell me about their relationship with death, because I'm aware, after many years of teaching this material, that most of them haven't had a lot of opportunities to think about death and have a safe space to talk about death. And so the death reflection is a you know an attempt to process the kinds of deaths they may or may not have experienced, what and how that death was handled by their family members, uh, how they responded to it, and then how it might have shaped their experience of death, the way they think about death. Now, it's true that some students haven't had an encounter with death at this point. It's fairly uncommon, I would say, because usually they've at least experienced the death of a pet. And those can be very, very challenging deaths for my students. But even if they haven't had an experience of death, they still often have a lot to say about what they think about death. They may have been to a funeral for a friend and they have feelings about death just based on, you know, their experience of the world. So essentially, these death reflections are very personal. I tell them I'm not grading the substance, obviously, of, of their experience, but more about how they reflect and analyze it. And I have just heard so many different things from students when I read these that are, you know, very personal, very intimate. And I would say the majority of those assignments tell a story of students who have not been supported around death, have not been prepared for death, and largely their experience is one of isolation and silence. And this, they realize, I think, even in the writing of the assignment, that this has had negative effects on them. 
right? So in other words, they begin to see that the silence around death for them has shaped the fear and anxiety they have around death as 18, 19, 20-year-olds in university being adults for the first time. And I guess that's where your course and your teachings come in, right? Like, how do you try and address what you're hearing through education? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that what they tell me is that simply talking about death, and I mean talking about anything in relation to death, talking about funerals, talking about other kinds of rituals around death, learning about how other cultures uh, you know, sort of go through the process of death and grief and mourning, that just having those conversations and being able to write about it and talk about it makes them feel less anxious. And they say things like, I have never been given a chance to have a conversation like this before. A lot of them will say they go home and they want to talk to their parents, you know, mom, dad, what do you want done with your body when you die? And then, you know, that causes a little bit of, you know, sort of, uh, I think, discomfort on the part of the parents. Uh, And sometimes they have good responses from their family members and friends, and sometimes they have challenging responses. So some people are a little bit put off by the fact that they're talking about death and others you know, tend to be interested and want to learn more. But I would say most of the students who are in the classes, you know, having a chance to talk about death and and express their fears, even just that, helps them feel better prepared for any deaths that might occur. And the interesting thing is that I often have students who have taken a course and years later they write to me, And they tell me stories about how a friend was, you know, going through the experience of a loss of a parent and they felt like they were able to be present for them or they had to confront the death of a pet. And they remembered, you know, the things that we talked about. And so that's always encouraging to me because it makes me realize that, you know, we can't lessen the the sadness of death and how difficult death can be when it comes into our life. But I think we can mitigate the trauma associated with death when there's never been a conversation preceding that death. Yeah, I'm curious about that idea of death anxiety is a phrase you've used before and this relationship to trauma. And I guess maybe what are some of the negative consequences if we as a society don't address it? I tell the students when we when we read sections from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and there's a foreword in that. And in the foreword written by Shogyam Trungpa, he says that the denial of death is a failure of love. And what he means by that is that our fear associated with death prevents us from showing up for people who need us, right? And so I'll ask the students, how many people in this room have had an experience where someone is ill or dying, and it could be, you know, family members, it could be friends, and you have felt, you know, hesitant to show up, to go and visit them. And invariably, everyone puts up their hand, and they all express, you know, the same shared feeling that they don't know what to say, and they don't know what to do. And so when I explain to them that 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 fear then, and that worry about not knowing what to do or say in a situation like this is actually can be harmful on, you know, the grandparent who just wants you to be there with them. And and they start to make the connection between, you know, 
our society's, you know, sort of silence around death and and the taboos around talking about death openly, they start to see how that has damaging effects for the dying, right? Because it means that people don't show up. And so, you know, oftentimes, and I obviously don't want my students to ever feel, you know, regret or remorse, but a lot of times they'll say to me, I wish I had had these conversations sooner. I would have felt more comfortable being present while my grandparent was dying or while my aunt was dying. And I wish I had shown up. But at the time that the fear and the cultural, you know, sort of silence around death prevented them from doing that. So, so voiced in that, in that way, thinking about the denial of death as a failure of love really resonates with the students. And they start to see that that makes it worth it talking about death. They, I think they see the value in working through their, their fears and their anxiety in order to allow people to have better deaths and deaths that are not alone. You're listening to People First Radio. I'm speaking with Susan Srigley. She's a death educator and an end-of-life companion. For the last 20 years, she's been teaching death studies at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. Building off of that, going from the student experience, would you have just any advice to give to people more generally who maybe are in that same situation of maybe a kind of distant relative or someone in their life who they're not super close with is maybe in that situation of terminally ill or have an impending death and maybe they're just feeling kind of weird or anxious or don't know what to do? What would you say? How how can folks navigate that kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, I always say go see them. I, I, people ask me this all of the time. You know, my grandmother is ill. And these are my colleagues, not just my students. And, you know, they're a little bit far away. And I think they might be nearing the end. And I say, go, 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 go. Right. I mean, I think that if if you can assure people that they don't have to, you know, fix this, if they don't, they don't have to say anything that will make it better. I think if we can let go of the idea that we can fix or solve or help someone, you know, face this very challenging thing that they're going through and that really what they want is presence and an ear and love, then I think that that gives people permission, right, to go and and to be there and to not feel the burden of having to do something. I think that that is what you know, hangs people up and it certainly hangs up my students. And once they, once they hear that, once they're given permission, they feel liberated from, you know, the fact that this isn't about, you know, sort of walking into a situation and having to know the right or, you know, sort of perfect thing to say or do. You tell your students that you teach death as therapy for yourself. Can you explain a bit about that? I do. Yes. Well, um, so my father died 23 years ago and he died at home. And thanks to the fact that my mother heroically was able to care for him and my siblings and myself. And so we we were able to allow him to have a a home death. Uh, And that's, you know, that's very challenging and hard, very, very hard to do if you don't have a lot of support. And, you know, one night uh, he was holding my hand and he thanked me for being there and he said, you know, what, what do people do who don't have anyone with them? And, you know, I, I don't think I fully 
process that at the time, but I realized, and it, it took about a year, I went and I did the training to be a palliative care volunteer, because I think that I, I sensed that he was, you know, sort of suggesting to me that, that maybe no one should be alone when they die. And so, so then, so for the past 22 years, that's what I've been doing. I've been companioning people at the bedside, but I am aware of the fact that you know, death denial is something that is part of our culture and and just that talking about death is hard because death is scary and final and all of those things. And, and I know that we need to keep death present. And a lot of the traditions that I teach, particularly Buddhism, will remind us of that or just the notion of memento mori, right? Remember that you will die. People used to keep a skull on their desk as that kind of reminder. So I know that just from what I've read and learned that keeping death present is something that helps us to not be, you know, blindsided by it when it does happen, because it can happen at any point. And so I do tell my students that teaching death studies is a kind of therapy for me, because it helps me to always remember that. And it keeps me present. And so I also say to them that, you know, I think that my experience of my father's death was pretty traumatic. I wasn't prepared. I was not in the place I am now. I, I had no idea what was coming or what it would be like. And so that's when I tell them that, well, I can't take away the sadness and the, the challenges that will come when they face death of someone close. I, I can hopefully, by talking to them openly and honestly about my own experiences, not just with my father, but you know, with my, with the people over the years who I've companioned that, you know, it can perhaps be less, you know, traumatizing or terrifying for them. And you've made the point that a lot of people's traumatic experiences around death tend to happen when they are young, right? Yes. I think, you know, it, it, it dawned on me one year when I was reading these death reflections, they are a wealth of information, but it's also, I mean, we have conversations in class and we also, you know, uh, there, there are exams and things like that where they, where they tell personal stories. But what I realized was that my students are the heirs to the dominant death denying assumption around kids and death, namely that we shouldn't talk about death with kids Right. So that's sort of been the predominant ethos that we need to protect kids from death only really in the 150 years uh, of time since, you know, kids weren't, you know, in the homes with people who were dying. Right. So this is relatively recent, um, but certainly it's the experience of my students. So they are the kids whose parents said, you know, we probably shouldn't talk about this or, you know, sometimes I don't even think it's an explicit attempt to not talk about it. I think sometimes they just think that it's going to upset children to talk about death. So if the pet dies or the grandparent dies, instead of talking to the kids, they don't say anything. And so I realized from the death reflections that my students had that experience of death. And the fact is, is that the research is pretty clear. I teach a I teach a section on children, death, and dying in one of my courses, and my students will say, "Yep, that was my experience. Namely, shield children from death, protect children from death, because you you want to, uh, you know, you don't want to upset them." But the research says that not talking about death causes more anxiety in children than talking about death, and when they hear and read that 
in the academic literature, they they agree and and they say, yes, it would have been so much better. I didn't feel prepared for this. Funerals, a huge part of this, you know, they will go to a funeral and no one has told them what might happen. No one has prepared them for the fact that there may be an open casket and an embalmed body in that casket. And I have students who have written about this and and tell me, I was not prepared for this. And that is also traumatizing, not just death, but the experience of something like that. And it's interesting to me now, because in the course where we talk about children and death and dying, we also look at children's stories or stories for kids that are increasing now around death, backyard funerals, uh, you know, sort of things like that. And, you know, what you see in these in these children's stories about death and dying is a real attempt to prepare children for what is a funeral going to be like? What are you going to see? What's going to happen? And I think that those kinds of educative books are so vital for young kids. And I lend my books out to friends all of the time because they say, you know, our hamster died. We don't know what to do. <laughs> Here you go. Here's a book, right? Yeah. You're tuned in to People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh. Death is hard to talk about. It seems like there's a real taboo in our society around discussing death, especially around young people. My guest, Susan Srigley, is a death doula and a professor who teaches death studies at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. She says that both the research and what she sees with her students every year suggests that talking about death reduces our anxiety around it. So if I'm a parent, maybe when I was a kid, no one ever really talked to me about death. I have kids. Maybe I'm feeling weird about it, but I feel like this is something I address. You mentioned the books there, but what what can I do to broach this with my kids and and when should I do it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And not being, you know, a child therapist or psychologist, I'm, you know, I don't I don't want to sort of give advice, but I think that, you know, if if like to bring it up out of the blue, maybe it would be a bit weird. But I think that a lot of times with kids, you know, working with, you know, those those little animals like the bird that hits the window, right, is a is a way to sort of begin those conversations gently with kids in an age appropriate way where you can talk about death and, and, you know, allow them to see that this is part of life. This affects everyone and everything and people too, you know, and, and also with that bringing in a little bit of ritual. So a little backyard burial is always a good idea and the box and, you know, things like that. I think that really helps, but I think that, you know, when when people contact me and ask me questions about talking to kids, it's usually in the wake of a death that has happened, uh, you know, a more significant death than the backyard bird, right? So a grandparent or or even when someone is sick. And the, you know, in those instances, so what I was saying earlier about the kinds of experiences my students had of, of silence, I think that in those situations, it's best to talk openly and honestly with the child, to not, you know, avoid the conversation, but to give them 
the chance to to talk about how they might be feeling and and when someone dies specifically not to use euphemisms i think that's a really big part of what happens around death and dying is that we say things like you know grandpa is just sleeping now and then children become afraid to go to sleep at night because or if mom goes to sleep does that mean mom's not going to wake up either you know so so sort of really clear and honest kinds of answers and Caitlin Doty has a great video that I show my students. She's a funeral director in Los Angeles and and uh, the founder of the death positive movement. And and in this little video that she does that I show my students, you know, she says, "Don't be afraid if you know the answer to something to answer it as honestly as you can, right? In an age appropriate way, and don't feel like you have to make stuff up." Right. And I think that's really vital. You you don't have to, again, it's the same thing. You don't have to fix death. You don't have to come up with something that's going to make it easier. It's okay to say that this has happened and we're all sad about it. We were talking earlier, and I feel like a, a really interesting point you raised is that even in professions like uh, nursing students, social work students, criminal justice students, in these domains where people in the professional world are likely to have to deal with death maybe on a more frequent basis, that there still isn't much discussion on the subject kind of built into the education. Yeah, I think that's true. And I I mean, what I have noticed over the years is that increasingly those students are coming into my classroom, they've heard about the course, definitely nursing students. But also, like I said, those other pro schools that you mentioned, social uh, social work and criminal justice, I had a student come to me and say, I want to be a police officer and I'm assuming that I'm going to encounter death. And so I think I should probably, you know, have the space to talk about that and learn what I can. And, and I think that that is just so critical to have people who are going to be in situations where death is going to be happening or that where they're dealing with the aftermath of death to, you know, essentially to be okay with it themselves, to already have had time, in a sense, to reckon with their own mortality. So death awareness is not just about, you know, knowing certain facts, which you then apply, right? I mean, part of it is overcoming your own fears, working those out. The death reflections, you know, are in some ways, I think, sometimes therapeutic, because, they give students the opportunity to think about their mortality, the mortality of those they love, and, and just to get a little more comfortable around the topic so that they're not shying away from it. And so if you think about someone who's in a professional situation, a nurse talking to a family who has just lost their child, you are going to want someone who isn't afraid to talk about these things and who can be supportive because they're not bringing in their own anxiety about death to the conversation. And, and I think this is why, you know, my students often say, and, you know, I, it's more complicated than, than it is to just say it, but that, that this is a course that should be mandatory for everyone. That in some ways we are all going to confront death and our mortality and the mortality of those we love. And so, you know, spending some time with it, thinking about it. The philosophers have always talked about preparing for your death and the the fact that as human beings, we die and shouldn't someone be paying attention to that fact, right? But I think that, you know, there are a lot of other things that folks in those disciplines need to be trained for. And I think this kind of humanities-based 
education and death studies is really important for them to have the opportunity to just work through it and think about it in different ways. Are there any reflections or important things you think people need to know from your perspective about maybe the difference between sort of death at the natural, if you will, end of life versus the idea of unexpected or accidental death? Right. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah, that is a big difference. And when we, you know, in, in different courses, we talk about that in different ways. But you know, I think that this is something that my nursing students have mentioned to me that while they would cover topics like palliative care, which is, you know, care at the end of life and, you know, sort of what is happening to the body as someone dies. And they might be familiar with that. But I think many of them express a concern. You know, some might say, I want to go into emergency medicine or I want to work, you know, in the NICU unit. And they have anxieties and fears about facing death that is catastrophic and sudden and accidental and not expected. And I would say the same thing is true, that that having, I mean, it's never going to be any less challenging, of course, but I think in those instances, even more so, people need to have had some time thinking about death and the fact that you know, there are no guarantees, right? I think we live with that easy assumption that somehow we all get to live until the ripe old age of 80. And we know that's not true. We know that mortality means that we could die at any point. And I think having that reminder, some students have that reminder because they lose a friend, a young a young person. And then those students always reflect on the fact that that brought home to them the fact that they're not immortal and that death can happen at any point. So so I think that the more we spend time thinking about mortality quite simply and the fact that we all fall under that category is going to make a difference when it comes to those kinds of unexpected deaths. This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh and my guest is Susan Srigley. She's a professor of religions and cultures at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. She's also an end-of-life companion. We're talking about her work, talking about death, with post-secondary students. I know you've done some work around end-of-life care for people who might be living on the streets. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, uh, this happened because I was uh, at an International Death Symposium in Toronto in 2018, and I was listening to a presentation by Dr. Nahid Dosani, who works in Toronto and sort of began what is now a very established program. But he was driving around his Honda Civic in downtown Toronto, caring for people who were living in the streets, those who were unhoused, and who were sick and dying. And after that presentation, I was so moved by this work and so shocked that I had never thought about it before, what it means to die in the streets, that I introduced the subject and told my students about him sort of in an impromptu way. And my students were equally moved by this. And it's interesting to to read their reflections on that just in discussions that, you know, they'll say to me, I'm embarrassed that I never thought about what it would be like to die in the streets. I'm embarrassed that I never realized that maybe someone who is living in the streets and you know has a has a cancer or a terminal illness 
you know, isn't able to just pop into a hospice and be admitted and have that more gentle end of life experience, because to get into a hospice, you need a health card and a referral from a doctor. And so all of those missing parts that students hadn't really thought about come together. And so after that, I decided to integrate part of the course, you know, to learning about the work of Dr. Dasani and, um, and to just to talk about this as, as one of the important elements of thinking about what end of life looks like for everyone, right? Those who are on the margins just as much as, you know, those who are those who are not. What kind of a change do you see through your students from when they come in and they write those death reflections to the end of a course or a semester? I think that they're I think that they're more comfortable and open in their conversations about death. I think that they they start up challenging conversations with family members. I don't take responsibility for that, but they, you know, they sort of, they raise these, these issues with their parents. And I think, you know, one of the things that concerns them a lot uh, is that they want to know what kind of disposition their parents would like. What, what is going to, what do you want done with your body after you die? You know, because I tell them in the class that if we don't talk about this, which we don't, then you're never going, you're not going to know what people actually want. And, and, and that has real implications because then in the midst of your grief and your loss, you're suddenly scrambling to try and figure out what, you know, your family wanted because you never had that hard conversation. So I think that they're very brave in broaching these conversations. I give them little death ambassador pins at the end of my class uh, because I want them to wear them and sort of have that pin as, you know, sort of a conversation starter, essentially, where, you know, people can say, hey, what's a death ambassador? And then they can, through those conversations, maybe change the discourse. I realize that I can't do this myself. I can't change the conversation about death in our culture. But, you know, the hundreds of students that I teach every year going out in the world, feeling empowered to have you know, those sometimes delicate, but really important conversations maybe can change or challenge some of the ways that, you know, we avoid conversations about death in our culture. The other thing that's really interesting, too, is that, you know, many of my students are very ecologically conscious. They care about the environment. It's very central to their being. And when they learn about some of the negative effects of traditional burial and cremation on the environment, they are suddenly, you know, sort of surprised to learn that there are new methods of disposition coming out that and that have been established that are more ecologically friendly. And I would say that most of my students, after learning about this, will do, you know, an about face and say, I always thought I wanted a traditional burial, or I thought that cremation was ecologically friendly. Now I want to try alkaline hydrolysis, which is also known as water cremation, or I hope natural organic reduction, which is human composting, comes to Canada so that I can not leave kind of a toxic, you know, effect on the planet when I die. Let's say I've been listening to this conversation and I'm thinking... Wow, you know, I really I don't talk about death and I can see X, Y and Z where this will cause me problems down the road. What would you say is a good place to maybe go away from here 
and start to to change that in my day-to-day life? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, death cafes are are one form of, you know, sort of venue for people to have these conversations. Uh, they began in the UK, but they are now all over the world. So you type into Google deathcafe.com and you will find what death cafes are about and also maps and listings. So every death cafe all over the world is put into that site. So if you happen to be in Seattle, you look up death cafes in Seattle and you can find one near you or wherever you might be. And and death cafes are really just a place where people can get together, drink coffee, eat cake, and just talk about death. And, and they're safe spaces where people can have the conversations that that they're not allowed to have anywhere else. I would say that you could look into social media. There are a lot of people in sort of my community of death workers and death positive folks that you can uh, learn from them. Uh, I think that the Order of the Good Death is a a really important online platform. This was founded by Caitlin Doty, who's the um, the founder of the Death Positive Movement. And so the Order of the Good Death is a website full of resources. You will find videos, articles, podcasts, everything. I mean, and I was just thinking about that. Podcast is another great place to start. You know, just put death in your podcast search and you will see all kinds of things come up. Often my students have to write assignments on death podcasts, and that's sometimes their first experience of learning about death through a podcast. Well, we're going to be contributing to that literature today, which is very exciting. Is there anything else you'd like to bring to our conversation? You know, I think that I would like to, it's very hard. I I read an assignment the other day where a student said that they felt guilty about talking about their grief over the loss of a loved one, uh, a grandparent, because they said, well, it wasn't happening to me. And they felt that they weren't justified to be upset. I think that, you know, death denial is also connected to grief denial in our culture. And and I think that a lot of people are suffering unnecessarily because of the kind of silence around death. So it's not just about learning about death, thinking about your mortality and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, there's real grief involved. And... To me, the fact that there are people who are suffering in silence because they think that their grief is something that they're not supposed to share because no one talks about it, that seems to me really an unfortunate situation. And and so I, I think that the whole conversation needs to be broken open, not just conversations about death, but also conversations about grief and And so, you know, I think that that's a really good impetus for us to have more conversations if we think about people who are suffering and wanting to alleviate that suffering. Well, Susan, thank you so much for being open to having this conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for being interested in the conversation. Susan Srigley is an end-of-life companion and a professor at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. 